0: Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Dr. Sanford Newmark. Dr. Newmark is a clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, OSHA Center for Integrative Medicine. He is also the head of the Pediatric Integrative Neurodevelopment Program at the OSHA Center specializing in the treatment of autism, ADHD, and other developmental or chronic childhood conditions. He did both his medical school and went on to do a two-year integrative medicine fellowship with the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. He also has a longstanding interest and expertise in nutrition and its impact on childhood development and general health. He combines conventional medicine with nutrition, behavior management, and various complementary modalities. Dr. Newmark has lectured widely on both autism and ADHD and has authored three chapters in integrative medicine textbooks. He has written a book entitled ADHD Without Drugs, a guide to the natural care of children with ADHD, and his UCTV talk on ADHD has had over 4.6 million views. In this episode, Dr. Newmark shares how we can take an integrative approach to both ADHD and autism. He provides us nutrition and supplement recommendations starting from preconception, lifestyle habits we can avoid to help prevent the onset of ADHD and autism, and what other healthy lifestyle non-negotiables we should be getting our kids to practice. I highly recommend anyone thinking about having kids in the future, is currently pregnant, or already has a crew of kiddos to tune in. Welcome, Dr. Newmark. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. This is a topic, you know, we haven't really discussed ADHD or autism on our show yet. Um, and I know for a lot of our, um, listeners, especially since a lot of them are parents, it is definitely at top, you know, top of mind. And then also we have a lot of listeners too that are getting ready to start having some babies. And, you know, it's something that we all think about. Um, I myself am due in less than six weeks with our second oh, child. Well, dude, that's and great.
1: congratulations.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. And um, it's, you know, it's definitely something that crosses your mind during that preconception phase, then when you are pregnant, and then also when you have your child and, you know, you're experiencing whether it's behavioral difficulties or, you know, really anything day to day, you're just like, Watching so closely and patiently, so I'm really excited to pick your brain and thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, happy to do it. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing thing the uh, the growth and the diagnosis of both ADHD and autism. Yeah. Uh, ADhD is you now probably around 10 to 12 percent of all kids which is just enormous if you think about it and then 1970 you say it was maybe you know one percent two percent and then the growth of autism which is a much more scary and, and possibly debilitating diagnosis has been even more dramatic and now it's you know it used to be, Several in 10,000. And now, you know, some places it's one in 33, 30, one in 40, something like that. So it's something people
0: really should be thinking about. Yeah. I and mean, I definitely want to get into why you think it's rising and those trends are occurring. But I'd love for you to just start off with telling us a little bit more about your journey and how you got into specializing in ADHD and autism in children.
1: Yes, yeah, so I'd be happy to do that. So after I graduated from medical school and did my pediatric residency in Arizona, I uh, I was actually just doing primary care pediatrics in, uh, in Arizona for about 10 or 12 years. But I'd always been interested in integrative medicine. I always felt that by sticking just to the bounds of conventional medicine and medications, we we're losing a lot. And um, but I, I employed it a little bit uh, in my practice, but it was hard. It was hard in the context of what I was doing. And then I got a chance to do an integrative medicine fellowship with uh, Dr. Andrew Wilde's program, which was right there in Arizona. And so you know I kind of jumped off the cliff and and went back and did a two-year fellowship uh, in integrative medicine, uh, specializing, of course, in pediatric integrative medicine. And after that, I opened a practice, just in pediatric and creative medicine in general, the consulting practice. And what happened there was really interesting. Over the five years I had that practice, I got more and more and more kids with ADHD and autism. It was like that was the area where people really had the need for something different than conventional medicine. And you know, I saw other things, of course, asthma and headaches and things like that. And I just got, you know, with having more patients in, in those areas, I got more and more interested in those areas when then you know word spread. And then I moved to California and uh I actually decided to open a practice that was basically ADHD and autism, and some related things like Tourette's and behavioral problems. And stuff. So that was my journey. And now I'm at the uh, University of California, San Francisco, uh, I'm a professor there and I have a, you know, a full plan practice in uh, ADHD and autism.
0: No, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, like, right, and I feel like this happens to most clinicians or medical professionals. Those specialties just kind of come to you, right? You see what you know people are bringing to your practice and what the need really is. Um, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm really want wanted. You said it before, but I wanted to dive into, you know, why do you think and what is the research telling us with why is there such a rise, and you were saying particularly in autism and ADHD, and um, can we talk a little bit more about why it's trending up?
1: Yes, and I would separate them. Um, in ADHD, you have to make the distinction between whether there's more ADHD and we're just diagnosing it more. And I think a really big part of it is that we're diagnosing it more. I think we're overdiagnosing it. Um, if you look at many other countries, instead of 10 12 percent of people having ADHD, it's two three percent. Even even the sort of ADHD experts here in the United States think it should be maybe three six percent. But we have a lot of people who are uh, demanding services from along the whole spectrum from from kind of wealthy people who all want their kids to go to Harvard and want it. So, you know, they're taking Ritalin so they can do better in school to um, really poor kids with behavioral problems where schools don't have services. And sort of the only thing you can do is give them medication to control them. Uh, so, you know, there's there's that. There's like overdiagnosis. And the, the reason you know that is if you look at a state map, there are states right next to each other where, where the rate is 15 or 16% in one state and next one it's 7%. And that's not biological. That's all about you know difference in how we diagnose. On the other hand, I also think there's more ADHD, mostly because I think we don't really know this, but of toxins in the environment, of the diet, um, deficient diets, and uh, also the pressure on kids these days. You know, one interesting thing is that 20 years ago, something like 20% of kindergartners were asked to learn to read. Now it's 70 or 75%. So if a kid is sort of a little slower to develop the ability to do that, suddenly he maybe has ADHD or she maybe has ADHD. And um, if you were born in August rather than September, you had more than twice as a uh, higher chance of being diagnosed with ADHD and treated with medication under the youngest person in the class. So that's,
0: interesting. Yeah,
1: that, that's been confirmed in several studies.
0: Well, you just confirmed for me then. We've been going back and forth of our son is in late August, baby. And we're like, we're probably going to hold him back here. And now we will
1: definitely be holding him
0: back. Yeah,
1: I totally agree with that. I think we demand too much too early in terms of academics. So, I'm holding them back a And then with autism, it's really a different story. I mean, I think some of it is more diagnosis, not in the sense of overdiagnosis, but in people looking at it, looking for it harder, being more sensitive to it. Certainly, diagnosing milder cases, you know. Used to be the kid who was diagnosed with autism and was, you know, kind of sitting in the corner staring off into space and, and, you know, not relating at all. And now a lot of the kids see with severe autism it takes you a while to, out to even figure out that something's mm-hmm. going on. Right. So there's a bigger spectrum, and but there's more and more information than environmental toxins are a sources source of the increased diagnosis.
0: So it seems like environmental toxins, because I know you had touched on it with ADHD, could be a common theme, a common theme for both. So, what, you know, we'll get into also like, you know, other ways we treat both, but just from your work with patients, what do you recommend when someone wants to reduce their environmental toxin load or wants to reduce it for their kids?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. the first thing is looking around the house, don't use any pesticides in the house and that includes flea collars and, you know, roach sprays and don't use pesticides on your lawn. There's really good evidence that moms who are bred who be exposed to even things like a flea collar on their dog have a higher level of children um, So that's the first thing, get rid of all the pesticides. The second thing would be to get rid of uh, sort of the artificial chemicals in your environment, you know, the, the, the scented sprays. I tell people to use unscented laundry detergents. They can, even things like seventh generation, which are entirely natural, and, you know, unscented soaps. I mean, there's laundry detergents, all that, you know, just to clean up the house. And then the second thing is diet. to, uh, to the extent that they can afford it, to not eat foods that spray with pesticides. That's really important, in my opinion. There is one study that showed that kids who had higher, you can measure pesticides in the urine of people who are exposed to pesticides. And kids who had higher levels of pesticides in the urine had higher levels of ADHD. So, what can we do about that? Um, you know, not everybody can afford everything organic. You know, um, if you can, I would do it. But if you can't, try and um, at least get your fruits and vegetables organically. And now, at least places like Costco, Walmart, Safeway all have organic fruits and vegetables, and they're not outrageously priced. So. And
0: if you buy if you buy them frozen too, organic, they're always cheaper and yeah. last longer in your freezer. And they're usually flash flash frozen, so I always love that a lot of the times the nutritional content is increased than even just those fresh fruits and vegetables because a lot of them have traveled from fresh. other countries. And um, whenever food's exposed to that light and heat, you, use, you lose some of that nutrient density. So I'm such a big proponent of frozen vegetables and just for, <laughs> for moms or parents, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. very easy. It's very easy to heat them up last minute and serve them to your child, which I feel like we're doing every single night. Um, But that's that's really fascinating. I'm curious if when we talk about like our environmental toxins or diet, how much of it is during, you know, when parents are thinking about having a child. So during that preconception phase versus while you're pregnant, Kind of versus when your child is, you know, actually there and taking things in as a baby and as a toddler.
1: It's all of it. You know, the preconception part is when you start loading up on your body load of uh, things like heavy metals and, and of course, and then, you know, people don't know they're pregnant often for the first couple of months. So it's not always great to change your diet after three months. I mean, it is great, but Yeah. there's damage that can be done already after even you know in the first couple of months of pregnancy and then you know during pregnancy and then during early childhood, it's really important. So you should do it anytime. And then in the world of autism is very interesting. You can pre- prevent autism to a certain extent. If you have a child with autism, it's really important to to look at all these issues because you can prevent, you can decrease the chances of having another child with autism, which are very high if you have one child with autism, much higher than if you haven't. And just by looking at, you know, preconception and and pregnancy, nutrition, pesticides and all that,
0: and in terms of, you know, nutrition and supplementation, what do you recommend to your patient and then also to someone who's in that preconception or pregnancy phase?
1: Yeah. Um, so in terms of nutrition, probably the most important thing is to take a good pre vitamin. I mean, that's like really important that really, because of the folate in those vitamins, that really reduces the risk of autism. And so I would recommend anybody thinking of considering starting on a, on a good prenatal vitamin with at least 800 micrograms of folate. So that's number one. And then eating organically, eating a good diet, you know, staying away from junk food, too much under, I mean, certainly gestation diabetes is not good for child's development. And, um, you know, I, I don't like to recommend. Um, picky diets you know, you should, look, you, know or you should eat this or you should eat that I mean I love Michael Pollan who's a, who's a pretty famous author I don't know and he says something like eat foods mostly plants not too much yeah you <laughs> can remember that you will probably do okay Mediterranean diet as a general it's probably the easiest thing to tell people you know more vegetables, more whole grains, uh, not too much meat,
0: not too much dairy, not too much sugar. You know. Yeah, and has, I'm curious how the science found because I feel like a lot of people have this, you know, the idea that, particularly with ADHD, um, the connection between that and sugar consumption in kids, what's the link there or is there a link?
1: Yeah, you know, The research hasn't proven it very well. Um, There's not been a lot of studies. The studies of, you know, when you use a placebo group, often the placebo placebo group does as badly as the sugar group. So people say, oh, it's all in people's pants. But sometimes with placebo, you have got things like uh, Splenda or fake sugar. And so that could have caused the problem. All I can say is many, many parents tell me when their kids get sugar, they go nuts. But more importantly, when those kids get food dyes, that's way bigger than the sugar. And it, it's and their it, diets, it, yeah. Because many times when kids have quote sugar, what they're really eating is sugar with food dyes. And and we know food dyes make ADHD worse. They make normal people more hyperactive. Like in Europe, there's a warning label on anything with certain food dyes in it. says this will make your child more hyperactive and
0: that's one of the things, Dr. Newmark, that when we're in the preconception phase and pregnancy phase, we also want to avoid correct those food dyes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: The other thing we haven't talked about a little bit about is epigenetics. Epigenetics is something that means that when you, you can change what, how your genes are expressed by things that happen to you and that will be passed on to the next generation. And and to, so for instance, if your grandmother had a high blood level that would change the way genes are expressed in her eggs and it would go on to your mother and you would have a higher chance of problems related to lead. So this passes from generation to generation, even if the mom wasn't exposed to lead or song. So um, it's really important to be careful at every generation. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. And I'm, I'm curious your, you know, viewpoints and also what the research is saying too about you know, it's, I feel like it's so controversial, but between vaccinations and autism or ADHD, I mean, I feel like it's everyone has a different viewpoint, but not so many are looking at the science. Um, what have you found based on the science in terms of if there's a connection between vaccinations and either ADHD or autism?
1: I think the science says that there's not a connection. You know, I I'm a big proponent of oh. vaccines. I have no problem with people wanna if people want to uh, change the vaccine schedule a little bit instead of reading like four and two months and four and four months, get two to two months, two or three months, you know. I, you know, as long as they get the vaccines, I don't have any problem with people who feel like you know they don't want to get so many shots or at the same time. But I think... Mean, Overall, vaccines are you know, lifesavers and people should have their vaccines. I will say occasionally it is very clear to me that a vaccine is the thing that triggered somebody's autism. On the other hand, there's lots of things that can trigger autism, you know. Gastroenteritis can trigger autism in some kids or some other kind of stress on the system. So, yes, in a rare case that can be the trigger, but that you know, that's all well, the millions of kids who don't get certain diseases because they get vaccines.
0: Yeah, no, it that's I no, I completely agree. And I'm curious to what those causes or triggers for both ADHD and autism. What do you find are the causes and triggers that are most Prevalent that you are seeing in your patients? I know we talk about environmental toxins or nutrition. Are those usually the most prevalent or are there other triggers See, or causes? We, we just don't
1: really know in any individual. Yeah. You know, if you do epidemiological studies and things like pesticides and nutrition and things related to autism or ADHD. Uh, and <laughs> let's not forget the genetic part. I mean, these things are run in families for sure, especially ADHD. <laughs> 90% of my patients whose kids have ADHD can kind of, identify one of the parents or at least the uncle or aunt that, oh yeah, I wasn't diagnosed, but that's me. I was like that, dad was like that, you know, uncle was like that. So there's a big genetic component, of course. And then um it's hard to see in any particular kid why it happens. So I mean, even high parental stress or even high stress during pregnancy is not associated with these things
0: yeah no and that and have you found are there any particular or specific nutrient deficiencies the research has found or that you found that are in correlation to either
1: yeah yeah well the way i would put it what we found is there are nutrient deficiencies that if you replace kids get better whether those actually caused it in the first place, we really haven't yet. Yeah. So, take, uh, take a omega-3 um, fatty acid status you know, in all of course. Um, we know that Fish oil that omega-3 fatty acid treatment usually in the form of fish oil helps kids with ADHD. That's been demonstrated in many studies, several meta-analyses, and it does where you take all these studies and you put them together statistically, and there's just no doubt about it. So did the omega-3 fatty acid deficiency cause the ADHD? Probably not by itself you know, but is it a factor? Probably. We do know that kids who have, you can measure omega their fatty acid status and most of the studies don't, but the ones that do, we do know that the kids who have lower omega-3 fatty acid status to start with, do better with treatment. It makes sense, right? You know, you have plenty of fatty acids on board and then you're probably gonna not have as much improvement. So, I. How much does it
0: contribute to the development of aviation? It's hard to know, it really is. And iron, same thing, vitamin D. That's interesting with iron, too. I, I heard during another podcast talking about ferret, like low ferritin, um, and that was one I had not heard of. But even with like omega 3s, is there a specific dosage that you recommend to your patients based on the research, or is every single patient different? Like you test them first and see their status and then go from there.
1: Great. So um, I do have sort of across the board recommendations. And and usually based on the amount of EPA and DHA that's in there, the studies seem to indicate that more EPA than DHA is the uh, optimum balance. So they want a half, two times as much EPA. And then, in general, for kids, you know, less than ten or so, it's a thousand total EPA DHA. Younger adolescents, fifteen hundred, and um, older, two thousand. Older adolescents, you know. And of course, it depends on their size. I haven't been testing omega three fatty acid until maybe the last six to nine months because it, it people had to pay for it out of pocket. But now, Quest Labs. Do it and insurance will pay for it. So you can test it. And what's but um the only norms are kind of based on cardiovascular risk. So we don't really have really good norms, but you almost everybody I tested doesn't take on the fatty acids as slow It's like nobody yeah. and that gets and an very complicated biochemistry about how much omega-6s we eat and how much omega-3s we eat and how much processed food we eat and I'm sure the listeners don't want to hear all these details but the bottom line is almost anybody who doesn't take some sort, sort of omega-3 supplement with this low so they need it.
0: Yeah that's what you know I think a big thing like I'm always talking about especially with clients and patients and just educating people it's always about like what can we add to our diet and you spoke with this earlier like rather than taking away or having some restrictive diet and it's kind of like with the you know trying to balance out those omega-3s and omega-6s omega-6 fats i mean yes we can do our best to try to reduce a lot of right and like our seed oils and things like that but it's really tough these days and so i think uh a great way to help balance out that ratio is just by increasing our omega-3s. And we were talking a lot about like that preconception phase and then also while you're pregnant and omega-3s are so important during both of those times. So also trying to like set your child up. I mean, I know for me, it's like I load my kid up with, you know, while I was pregnant and then now he takes his fish oil and I'm hoping that it's, you know, (laughs) <laughs> that it's working and having a great effect. Um,
1: yeah, but I mean, you could go get a lab and test the level. Of, exactly.
0: I, I, I know, know. I'm like, like waiting, you,
1: waiting to. Uh, That's the opposite side of what I was just saying. The kids who I see who are taking fish oil, they have literally a three-status.
0: Yeah. No, it, yeah. it's it's really fascinating. In, in terms of vitamin D, which honestly, you know, most Americans are low, anyways. What correlation are you seeing there?
1: So vitamin D is uh, correlated with both autism and ADHD. There's um, more studies than autism on vitamin D, but there's some on ADHD, and all of them show that if you're deficient, if you have ADHD and if you're deficient in vitamin D and you get treated, you tend to get better. Same thing with autism. So really, I think that you know, vitamin D has hundreds of functions in the body. And we are, you know, at least half the kids I check are on vitamin D. So I think it's really silly we don't either check vitamin D status or treat everybody.
0: Yeah. And outside of kind of nutrition and like that health aspect, are there any other contributing factors to either ADHD and autism? Like whether it's more you know, screen time or like I feel like we're always saying like our kids aren't getting outside enough or what are there any other um, factors that you think play a part in terms of, you know, raising not only healthy kids, um, but hoping that we can prevent or reduce kind of this trend towards increasing numbers in ADHD and autism.
1: Yeah, so exercise is a big one. Again, we know that exercise is really important in ADHD, especially because there's more kids, so there's more research. Um, There's lots of studies showing that exercise helps ADHD. Do we know that exercise in the first place prevents ADHD? We don't really know that, but we do know that exercise is important uh, for kids with ADHD. So many moms will tell me that, you know, like life is okay as long as their kid gets out and spends two hours playing outside. If not, it's terrible. So we know that. So exercise is really important. Screen time is really an interesting one. It's a horrible problem in most of my families, especially with boys, but sometimes with girls. we know that increased screen time is correlated with an increased amount of ADHD, but it's not quite so clear that it's a cause or it's just a correlation. In other words, are the kids are gonna have ADHD anyway, more tending to be on screens, or their ADHD parents, more tending to put them in front of screens because they're disorganized. So we don't know for sure, but most of the information makes it look like too much screen time, probably increased development of ADHD. But there's one interesting study really recently showed that when parents give a screen to toddlers to help them calm down, uh, like at age two to three, by age five, they have much less ability to self soothe
0: I know. And it's so hard. I will say it's kind of it's so hard to not like if you're out at a restaurant or like to want to just give your phone. Um, I know, I feel like my husband and I have justified it as like, if they're, if he's learning, it's okay, but it is, you know, it still is a screen in front of their face and that's no, it's such a good point of just like, not wanting to use it as a reaction if they're upset, um. And, and that, that you know,
1: know, it's a really bad idea that to, to just oh you're starting to cry, here's your screen. I mean, of course, you know, they're in an airplane. You know,
0: yeah, exactly. Thinking, like not using it okay. as a as a reward or to self soothe, but more so just if you are going to offer it, just like and you know, more on a random basis versus as you know a reaction to something. Yeah. And just Would not you too s- much. You know,
1: Another thing I've heard that's really good is. It's not only what you're, how much time your child is spending on a screen, but what are they not doing because they're on a screen? Mm-hmm. Are they not going outside? Are they not reading? Are they not playing with other people? Are they not interacting with their family? Is your whole family sitting there on their phone during the air instead of talking? Yeah. Right. And
0: have any have the studies indicated like in terms of when we talk about like too much screen time? Because I think that's a question for all parents, is like, how much is too much? what you know what's kind of like okay um what have you found
1: so the studies have not given us a number they just haven't you know there's recommendations yeah. from the american academy of pediatrics but they're more like common sense recommendations i can tell you that i tell my families that i recommend no more than an hour on weekdays you know on school days of screen time and um Yeah, no more than
0: a few hours on the weekends. Yeah, that that was by uh, growing up. That was our (laughs) rule, even through high school, which we always snuck in some extra. But it was like an hour a day, and that's all you get. And it does, like you said, it's it's what are you not doing? When you're watching a screen, there are so many other things I mean, even as adults, right? Like, what are we not doing when we're sitting down and watching Netflix or um you know, a new show that came out that you're binging it it does it takes you away from so many other things you can be doing. And I think looking at it that way, uh, at least for me, provides a little bit more solace as a parent and wanting to make that effort to not just even like as a parent, when you're tired you're like, I know if I turn something on, they're going to sit still. <laughs> and you know, they're, you know, they'll at least pay attention sometimes I will say. Um, but yeah, it's a great way to think about that. So thank you. I, I do appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Uh, the other thing that people that's tricky these days as the kids get older is that a lot of times they're socializing with their friends by playing online games. And that does have, you know, there's something true about that, that and and especially for kids, say, with autism or kids are not very social, that may be a normal socialization. So then how do you balance that out? Especially these days, these, many people, are out, you i know in the, in the Bay Area and many people just can't go out and play with their friends, especially in San Francisco. So it's not like when I was a kid, you know, I came home from school, taught my books, ran out of the sweetheart played for three hours. I didn't need to have more socialization. A lot of kids travel to school or they're in a city and they can't get, there and everybody's got lessons. And, you know, so sometimes it's their only socialization generally. So we have to balance that as well.
0: No, that's a really good point. Yeah, because a lot of kids they do it like they're playing those video games where they can talk to their friends at the same time, but they are still in front of a screen. Like you said, they're not doing like, they're not outside. They're right. not interacting with their family. They're not reading a book or, or exploring like other things like art and right. Like I, I think we've gotten away from kids exploring other, um, interests, but that's a very, very good point that I did not think about. Um, is there anything we did not touch on, Dr. Mer- Newmark, that you think is very important in terms of raising healthy kids and um, trying to, I don't want to say prevent or lessen ADHD and autism in our well, children? Yeah, yeah I, I think you can
1: not say lessen or prevent. I think raise okay. our kids in LER during pregnancy you can do that. There's two pediatricians who are integrated pediatricians who treat autism and both of them have big primary care practices who wrote articles in which they showed that almost nobody or nobody in their practice had a second kid with autism over a number of years when they treat a lot of kids with autism and usually they would expect a lot of second kids with autism and that was just based on on, uh, information they gave the parents about how to prevent it in terms of you know all the things we're thinking about yeah and I mean this is just you know Anecdotal kind of study right? it wasn't the randomistic, but I think it shows that you can really decrease the incidence uh, by these kind of things. So, in terms of other things for LC kids, there's nutrition and there's you know pesticide exposure and there's exercise uh, and and there's stress. Uh, you know, that's something yeah. we're basing very stressed out kids, you know, in many ways, and, and some of the. Is societal. So, like, you know, it used to be that people live near their grandparents and their cousins and aunts and stuff like that. So there's a kind of a community in care of kids. Now there's not. Now we have parents like kind of isolated and trying to deal with jobs that require them to work long hours and uh, all the demands of the kids. And it gets really stressful. So these kids, and the kids can't play outside either. So we all stress out society, you know, and, and that's communicated. It's communicated in the hormonal balance of the moms and dads, you know, the hormonal balance of the kids. And so, anything we can do to decrease that is a good thing, you know. Yeah.
0: If if, if any of your parents ask you, like, what are ways that I can help my child reduce their stress? Do you have certain? um and, Tactics or strategies you go to?
1: Yeah, so um, I do. I mean, when, when we always talk about. I always talk with parents about what do their kids do every day? What are they doing in school? What do they do on the weekends? And um, you don't want to over over um, press them in terms of how many mm-hmm. is they're doing. You want them to have some free time. You know, and uh, I think that's really important. Kids are forgotten or don't have the chance to learn to play on their own. Going to soccer practice is not play. Going to a violin lesson is not play. Going out with your friends and just hanging is play. And, you know, kids don't do that. First of all, it teaches them really how to interact socially. But also, you know, just having downtime, you know, but their kids have downtime. It's really important. And, and the other thing, is not pushing them too hard at school. You know, not everybody has to go to Harvard. <laughs> or Stanford out here. You know, just, you know, you want your kids to, to do as well as they can, but without making... Deal, you know, um, kids, especially when they get to high school, some can be two four AP classes every semester because they want to, you know, have their resume. And they, well, uh, they, you know, they go sports and they're going to volunteer activities. They're doing this and that. They seem like really great kids and then they just collapse. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, I feel like that's part of our, our society has just become so competitive and then parents are putting that on their children. And it's really like, for me, it's really sad to see, like, I just keep saying, I always say to my husband, which like, I'm like, you know what? I just, I hope like if our son wants to do X, Y, and Z, great. If he doesn't, like even academically or athletically, it's, we have to remember like, it's our children's choice as well. Like it's not, Everything that we want for them, that they need to then do, but it's like taking a lot of it. I feel like it's almost talking to the parents and saying, like, how about you take off some of the societal pressures that you're putting yeah. on your child yeah. and some of them stressors too, because they they look at us as as their parents. Like you were saying, a lot of parents. I mean, most parents have so many stressors. You know, it's between their job and their children and um, financial stressors and everything going on and. It's it's important that we show them a good example of how we manage stress as well.
1: Right. And part of that is by turning on the phones and having dinner together.
0: It's mm-hmm. Relaxing. A hundred percent.
1: Yeah. You know, in terms of what you just said about what your kids will do, I can't remember the psychologist who said that, but she said that, you know, she said parenting is like gardening and not like carpentry. And in carpentry, we you can measure and exactly cut the board if you know what you're going to make. And if you're a good carpenter, what you have in mind comes out exactly. You plant a garden, you don't know exactly how each plant's going to do or how big they're going to get or which is going to do well that year and so like when you have kids you can't like predict what exactly is going to happen with every you kind
0: of have to go with it. so I think that's oh a great... I love that that's so it's so true and it's just such a good analogy I'm such an analogy buff I love analogies
1: yeah um, I give credit for that one but I can't remember her name
0: <laughs> yeah no that's great well thank you so much Dr. Newark this has been so enlightening I know for myself as a parent I know it will be for a lot of our listeners we do love to end every episode with a little rapid fire q a for our listeners to get to know you better so first thing that comes to mind i promise they're easy questions um what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool
1: oh um i do two things i meditate every day and i ride a bicycle bicycle rider
0: i love that um are you a
1: four times a week or so
0: so nice. Are you a coffee or tea fan?
1: Mostly tea. I'll, I'll drink coffee once or twice a week, but mostly I try and drink tea.
0: What's your favorite kind of tea?
1: I like, um, I like Earl grey. Me mm-hmm.
0: too. Really-
1: yeah, that's a good tea. And sometimes at night I'll drink an kind of herbal tea because I, I can't drink caffeine kind of at night.
0: And what about your favorite home cooked meal?
1: Oh, that's a good one. We're big pasta down. Yeah. It's really like nice pasta marinara sauce and maybe some chicken or something. And uh, yeah, I really like that a lot.
0: Yeah, you can never go wrong with a good pasta meal, especially when like it's that homey feeling. It's yeah, put,
1: we put lots of onions and pepper and greens. I think that's a great thing. Oh, well, let me put in a plug for smoothies of a terrific way yeah. of getting nutrition in here kids. you some kids, you know, they, they can't get them to be fruits or vegetables. And back to your frozen vegetables, you could take a whole you know, just get your frozen blueberries and put them in there with some yogurt and and uh you know make a smoothie and gradually start sneaking all that's amazing. So,
0: yeah, but, no, I agree. I actually find when my son is being a little picky, or when he's under the weather and doesn't really want to eat much, he will always drink a smoothie. So I think that's a great tip. And and it's nice too, because you can make a big smoothie and it's like a smoothie for the whole family. So everyone gets some. Um, And you can stretch it out for a few meals, which is always nice too. So that's a great tip. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, this was so enlightening. I know it's going to be for so many of our listeners. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you, work with you, um, you know, just learn more about you know the work you're doing?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I work at the ocean Center at uh, uh, UCSF in California. I see people from all over California. Uh, I see people by video as well as in person, uh, but um, I can't see people out of state. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book. It's called ADHD with Dr. It's like 12 years old now. So it's not totally up to date, but it's mostly I stand behind it. And, uh, um, yeah, that's probably the main lesson.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Newmark. And hopefully we will connect again soon.
1: Thank you. It's been delightful talking to you.
0: This week's actionable step is to pick one of Dr. Newmark's recommendations to raise healthy children that pertains to you. Whether that's keeping an eye on your nutrition during preconception or while pregnant, or focusing on less screen time and getting your kids outside more. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Wells, hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Stephen. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.